0: Today, there are 2 million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. filles et je l'histoire
1: de notre immigration ici
0: This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. and today's episode marks yet another first. The French Canadian Legacy podcast because for the very first time, we are speaking with somebody currently residing in France. So, this is actually the first time we've had to navigate a time zone difference, which is kind of fun for us. Uh, Lynn LeVec is a blogger and author who has written a book about one of her ancestors. Uh, but, Lynn's story herself is actually super interesting. She holds a degree in Russian studies, which is fun, uh, from Mount Holyoke College, a master's degree in modern European history from Rutgers, an MBA from Cal Berkeley, a doctor of education from the University of Massachusetts. Uh, she had a very impressive business career, uh, including time spent as a senior researcher at the Harvard Business School. However, Lynn's life has now taken a new path, documenting the life of Jean Chevalier, a fille du roi which is super cool and actually I want to mention Jean's middle name cuz that's awesome too. Alin, uh, welcome to the French Canadian Legacy podcast. Uh
1: thank you very much Jesse. I just want to make one slight correction. Sure. Her name Le- is Jeanne,
0: Jeanne, I appreciate that. Nice, Jeanne. Jeanne,
1: right.
0: Jean, was it Marguerite, correct? Yeah. That's Jean right.
1: Marguerite Chevalier. Wait.
0: Right. Marguerite, I have, because that was my grandmother's name. My dad's mom's name was Marguerite, so I don't come across that very often, so I got excited when I saw that. Jean-Marguerite Chevalier. All right, thank you for the correction. I appreciate that. But I'd like to start with your personal story. So where are you from?
1: Well, I grew up in Nashua, New Hampshire. Not, uh, well, how do we say this? Um, I was not surrounded by my French-Canadian relatives the way my cousin was, Because my mother was not French-speaking. She was um, a Swedish-Irish-Scotch background. And my father was interested in sort of differentiating himself from the French-Canadian community. But basically, Nashville, New Hampshire was full of Levesque and full of French-Canadian relatives.
0: Right. Now, why do you think uh, your dad chose to kind of not pass along the language to you?
1: Well, I think it was a little complicated. I think there was at that point in time there was a movement to sort of move away from being French Canadian. I mean, there was sort of two groups: sure. the people who tried to stay, keep their French Canadian roots, like my cousin's family, right. and um, then others who were trying to assimilate into the um, in the U.S. culture. And at that time in Nashua, New Hampshire, at least. I felt that there or I think the family felt that there was a certain amount of I don't know if you want to call it shame, but it was sort of you were considered to be sort of French second class citizens when you were French Canadian.
0: Sure.
1: Immigrants. Immigrants. Right,
0: right, right, right.
1: Um, And it wasn't until later. I grew up in the 40s and 50s, and it wasn't until later when uh, René Laveque, who was a very distant cousin Sort of brought more honor to being French Canadian than I think there was a sort of a revival of an interest in being French Canadian, or a revival of um, uh, pride in sure. French Canadian. Uh, so my father, who had grown up speaking French, felt that it was also a sort of a, a, a handicap to have be bilingual at that point in time. Which I sort of wished. Hey, Dad, I wish I had grown up speaking French, um, right. but. Had to do it later in
0: life. Yeah, which I completely understand. It's a very similar story that we've heard from a lot of people. Both both my parents grew up speaking French in the house, but didn't teach me or my sister. Kind of the same uh-huh. kind of thing. Yeah, so again, that was a Manchester story we hear over and over and over again. Um, so it's kind of crazy. But as I mentioned in your bio, uh, you've done a ton of super impressive things. Now, how did life take you to writing Jean's story?
1: Well, I can only say that... Jeanne chose me to write her story because in nineteen ninety two we were at a family reunion and received a copy of a family tree that took us back eleven generations to Robert Levesque and Jeanne chevalier and at that t- point in time, no there had been other there are other stories written about Robert Robert leveque
0: sure.
1: um, but not about Jeanne however, at that time, I was still very busy with my banking career and then later my consulting career something happened in about 2011 uh, 2011 when um, I went started looking on the internet getting something about her story and I contacted the archivist in uh, Coutances to see if she could find a register of, of Jeanne's birth, because there was some controversy about where she was born. And the archivist in Coutances found her um, a register of her baptism, and so I went it, to Coutances, which is uh, close to Mont-Saint-Michel, here okay. in France,
0: yep.
1: and um, received that, and got a copy of that, and went to the church where she was supposedly baptized and something happened and I just became obsessed with (laughs) John's story. I have no other explanation other than she chose me and she started haunting me and it wasn't until 2015 and 2016 that I started getting very serious about doing this research and that took me to writing the book about her.
0: Now was it that research that brought you to France? Is that why we're speaking to you from France now?
1: Uh, no. Uh, uh, Jean, Jean's story, I found most of Jean's story in Quebec um, sure. and in the the research libraries in Harvard and at um, uh, in Boston, the Historical Genealogical Society in Boston, because most of the traces of Jean are in Quebec. So I, I took several trips, made several trips up to Quebec um, and found most of her story there. And gotcha. here in France, there's no other trace of Jeanne until the mention of her parents in her, the first of her three marriage contracts. Um, so that so what took me to come back here was just, I came back in 2016 um, for a month and I thought, well, I'll come back and spend a year here. <laughs> and then in the middle of that year, I started, th- something just sort of drove me to saying, no, I'm going to staying for another year. And it just keeps happening that I'm staying here. Um, That's awesome. I, I attribute it to Jean's is- spirit is here because I'm I'm living now in Dieppe, Dieppe in Normandy. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and there are many ties here between the... Canada, Quebec, and um, and Dieppe. And so Jeanne left from Dieppe, left France from Dieppe, and I just think her spirit is here and it keeps me here.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Now, we've talked about the Fiduwa uh, program on other episodes, uh, but I have been reminded by a couple of different listeners that not everybody listens to the podcast in the order in which we record it. Uh, I guess a lot of people jumping on board like to start with the most recent and work backwards. So it's, it's dangerous for me to just kind of assume that pre- people have listened to our previous episodes. So maybe you could just tell us quickly what, what the Feed the World program was about. Okay. Um, in
1: 1534, Jacques Cartier claimed France, uh, fr- claimed Canada for sure. France. And it, there were sporadic visits to Canada from French uh, fishermen and explorers. And in, six, in the 16th century, they decided that they wanted to spend more time collecting furs and doing more exploring of Canada. But nobody managed to want to stay here, stay in Canada. And so in, uh, in the middle of this, Oh, sorry, 1661, is that right? Um, Louis XIV decided that he needed to spend, spend some money colonizing Quebec, and that involved sending women over because the fur traders, the farmers, the explorers weren't staying here or staying in Quebec. I don't know sure. why you're thinking I'm in Quebec. Um, <laughs> But staying in Canada, they after their contract was up or after a couple of years, they were coming back to France because there weren't women in enough women in Canada. So Louis the Fourteenth in 1663 decided to, among many things that he did to sort of structure a more um, stable Quebec, he sent started sending over women. to marry the traders and farmers and merchants in Quebec and start colonizing by having children there. And so that's the story of the Filles du Over the course of 11 years, from 1663 to 1673, Louis sent over almost 800 young women, young, their average age being in their in the 20s and early, uh, late 20s, the average age, and marry the men that were in Canada.
0: Gotcha. Now, you talked about um, not finding a ton of Jean's life prior to her leaving um, for Canada. Um, Ms. Karras, what do we know about Jean's life prior to leaving? And what can we speculate about what her life might have been before she got on that boat?
1: Well, she was 26 years old when she got on the boat. Um, it's according to my calculations. Um, and she, tw- I'm sorry, 28 years old. She was 28 years old when she got on the boat. And the only thing that I can sort of hypothesize is that she, she was an orphan uh, by her father. And life was just not all that great here in France at the time, the economic situation in France for peasants and and even uh, the smaller lo- nobility, it was just not, it was a horrible time in France. There was epi- there were epidemics, there were ongoing wars, there were fights w- between the nobles, and so it just wasn't a very pleasant time to be living in France. And sure. somebody in, must have encouraged her to. Um, decide to make this big move and I can only assume that from my speculation about Jeanne, she was uh, she, I, I might be you know projecting backwards an independent woman
0: <laughs> who, That's cool. who
1: decided yep. that she was going to look for uh, a, a better life in France in Cabot Quebec sorry and and probably was encouraged to go there by her family just because it wasn't a great time here in France. And she would have her pick of men there. Um, that was not the case here in France. She didn't have a dowry, and she couldn't join a convent. And, she, you know, there was, it wasn't like she could become a shopkeeper at sure. that point in time in France. So um, the the program, the, the Louis XIV program, um, the Fourteenth program, the Filles de Roi program, gave them passage to Quebec. they he provided them with um, a dowry or a gift and upon their marriage and provided them with some clothes and so it was it wasn't it was a a big risk, but it wasn't the greatest risk in the world because the program had a structure around it when there were women who were protecting them on the boat and there was a, a priest on the boat sure. and when they got to Quebec they were greeted by administration and um, they got to stay in dormitories for two or three months until they found their husband. So it was, it was still it wasn't like they were sent over and then when they got over to Quebec there was nothing there for them. It was a very structured program.
0: Sure. Now, one thing I always find curious is what the roi knew about Quebec before they got there, what their expectations were. Um, do we have any way of knowing what they if they had any idea what kind of what they were getting into?
1: That's a very good question. Um, I'm not sure only 25 percent of the women could read or write. So. Gotcha. It wasn't like, and there wasn't like there were newspapers um, that could would tell the stories, although there were people who were coming back from Quebec so that, you know, there could be rumors. I'm sure. And, and sure there were stories that came back, but the stories could also have been a little scary because there were stories about people being killed by Amerindians, uh, Canadian right. Aborig- uh, Aborigines. And so, I'm not sure how much of a support those stories gave for their decisions sure. to leave, but, but I'm sure there were rumors, but there was just nothing really official. Although there was some communication between among the religious community because the nuns who went over to found the uh, Hotel Dieu and the Ursuline Academy in Quebec did keep ties with their communities back here, as did gotcha. the Jesuit Please. Sure. Oh, that's
0: cool. Now, do we know where she left from and how long that trip would have taken to get to Quebec?
1: My assumption is she left from Dieppe. the sh- The ship left from Dieppe in the gotcha. late in late June of 1671. The trip normally took about six weeks, and from what I can tell, there was a marriage contract in august 15th from what i think were the women on that boat so the ship that her trip was probably one of the sort of median you know the six week kind of trip six or seven week trip i have a speech that i give here and i talk about how life on that ship was probably not very comfortable they were sort of squeezed into there like sardines and we we forget that there was no electricity there was no running water there were no toilets um right. and and they shared the ship with animals who were in the lower part of the ship who were either being taken over to quebec or were going to be used for food on the sh- on the journey right. and so it was probably very smelly
0: yeah yeah, not, for sure not
1: the most pleasant trip
0: <laughs> right no absolutely now do you have any idea how many uh Rois would have been on one of these ships.
1: Well, that's a, also another good question. There's a big, there are no real records of which, of how many ships went over. There's some qu- belief that there were two ships that went over that year. There were 120 women in 1671 who were part of the Fiduwa program in 1671. So either, there were either 120 on one boat or uh, if there were only one or I don't, we don't really know. There's no, gotcha. no no ship rosters. And if you look on a couple of websites, they, they list two different ships. So it's somewhere between 20 and 120.
0: So quite a few then. Yeah. Okay. So she makes this trip six, seven weeks. Sounds like a pretty miserable trip. Gets yes. off in Quebec City. Where does she go? What's the first place she visits? What do those first couple of months day-to-day look like?
1: All the women were taken to either one or two places, and they were that were within convent, you know, with nuns protecting them or with, um, you know, guardians protecting them. So they they lived in dormitories, either in the Ursuline. If, if they stayed in Quebec, they stayed at the Ursuline Academy or in a home Across from the current Hotel Dieu, which is actually sure. the original Hotel Dieu in Quebec, something like another third of the women went on. I think a third stayed in Quebec City, a third went on to Trois-Rivières, and another third went on to uh, Montréal, something like that. Not all of the women who came over the first year that year stayed in Quebec City, right. but Jeanne did. And from what the understanding is that there were, the women went, it was like a, um, there were halls that the women went into. And so it was like a matchmaking, you know, that they, they, and we don't know why the different women went into the different halls, but um, they don't know whether it was class or, you know, the region that they came from in France, because not all, this is a really important Point to make about these women and the men over there is not all of them spoke the French that we know as French today or oh, the Quebec yeah, right that we they all had di- different dialects so it's possible that they were shepherded in into this um, room into the one of the rooms by where they came from I we don't gotcha. know but in any event Jean. Uh, found Guillaume Lecanteur, or Guillaume Lecanteur found Jeanne. We're not <laughs> sure how that happened. We don't know why she picked the man she did, um, but within an estimated two months of when they arrived in Quebec, she and Guillaume Lecanteur were married, with along with nine other couples at the church that now It was located where the Cathedral of Quebec in Quebec City is now.
0: Nice.
1: That's the building. So she, they—that's where they were married. And it's funny to sort of think about what kind of a ceremony they had. They certainly weren't wearing white dresses, (laughs) um, and you know, didn't have flowers and all that kind of stuff. But in any event, they were married along with nine or ten other couples, and all the couples received some additional goods you know for starting a farm and things like that for for their first homestead one of the things we do know about the choices for these women is that they were it was very important that the man they had a home and they you know so they asked questions about their their living style and their home sure. um, and so Jeanne and her first husband moved to a a farm that he had rented close to Charlebourg charlebourg I think that's how they pronounce it in Quebec City now. Um, a, a little suburb of Quebec City. Gotcha. At, but within less than a year, they were moving to another village, L'Ange Gardien, closer to Saint-Anne-de-Beaupré. Okay. And at that point, Jean was pregnant. So they lived in L'Ange Gardien for... Seven years, roughly, until her husband disappeared.
0: Okay. Well, what what would her day to day life have looked like during this first period?
1: Well, that's uh, you know they were married on October. um, I don't have the date exact. October twenty first, something like that, and they moved directly to their new their farm. Now remember, this is October in Quebec. Yeah, absolutely. They had to get there very quickly, get the farm, you know, get all their supplies guarded, you know, stored away. Yep. And they uh, had to bring in whatever they needed to harvest. And because the winter was coming. Sure. So there, and she brought over something like 300 livres, which was the money at the time, worth of goods, uh, of personal belongings. And I'm assuming that she had sort of some sheets and blankets and things right. like that, in, yeah. that she brought over with her. And their first home was probably a one room cabin. Again, no electricity, no running water, you know, and even in the middle of winter, they had to go outside to go to the bathroom, I guess. I don't know those, I don't know all those <laughs> details. Yeah. But yeah. Uh. But she had to learn to cook with new vegetables, cook with new spices, um, the life the life of these women, I think, has not been described as well as it should be because they were the real pioneers. I mean, they're the ones who Absolutely. had to figure out how to cook with um, the new new vegetables, new fruits, new spices, new wildlife, um, and they had to make do. Now Jean, as far as I know was a city girl Um, and so she wasn't she had to learn how to bake bread and you know they had to. they used to from what I understand they ate a pound of or more of bread a day so she had to cook this bread learn how to cook bread quite quickly Um, so life was not all that easy
0: yeah no it doesn't sound like it at all Um, and as you alluded to earlier um, this is not her last marriage, but how, how what do we know about the end uh, of this first marriage? What details do we have about what happened to her her first husband?
1: Her first husband was uh, an entrepreneur. He was not a a farmer who wanted to sort of stick around on the farm. So he was he was buying and selling property and he was getting into trouble, financial trouble, and he disappeared sometime around the birth of their third child in 1678. He, we don't know anything about his death. We don't have the death certificate, um, but the assumption was that he died somewhere out on a, a fishing or a hunting trip. And he was buried out there without a priest around to do the death certificate. So roughly nine months later, she married Robert Levesque. We don't know how she met Robert Laveque. Um, I th- have several different guesses that um, there were friends who communicated, but remember Lange Gardien is on the north shore of the St. Lawrence, uh, about 20 kilometers from Quebec City, and Robert Levesque, her second husband, was living in uh, Rivière du which is 100 on the uh, the southern shore of the Saint Lawrence, about 150 kilometers from Quebec City.
0: <laughs> Somehow
1: they connected, and <laughs> All right. without you know without telephones, without the internet, without um, you know newspapers announcing the uh, the availability of a new woman. Um, or um, a man, or whatever. Um, but Robert Levesque's story is, is also interesting. He came over, I believe, on the same ship as Jean, and but they, he was committed to a three-year contract with the Lord whose land that they were going to colonize. And so he had to wait three years before he could even think about getting married. So that puts him at sixteen seventy four after all the filles de roi have already arrived, and most of them were married at that point, so he's looking for a wife, presumably somehow he found out about now Jean three or four years later, Jean is a widow with three young children, but you know three young children and all, all of all of them boys were eventually going to be able to be. Farm hands for uh, Robert Levesque and as he developed his farm, so somehow they connected and they got married and moved from Lange Gardien to Rivière-Well.
0: What did Rivière-Well look like, and how would that have been kind of a different scenario than she had been and when she first settled?
1: And that's another really great question, Jesse. Um, Lange Gardien was close to Quebec City and was part of the area that a lot of was already fairly settled and so in Lange Gardien, Jeanne had lots of neighbors. Rivière-Well, there were, by the time she arrived there, there were less than 10 families and they were in the most eastern seigneurie. One of my problems is I'm thinking French and English at the same time. Um, <laughs> Not a problem. Signoria, you know, the, the Lord's property, um, a fief, I guess is what you might call it. It was one of the most eastern of those. In fact, it was the most eastern at that point in time. So um, it's a pretty wild area. Weren't a lot of Amerindians at that point in time around there. They had all sort of moved away. It was wild. And not not the same kind of village that she was used to.
0: Gotcha. And so
1: she didn't have neighbors. At My estimation at that point is there might have been about five or six other women there at the time, including the Lord's wife. And uh, so Jeanne arrives in 1679. Eventually the, the, the place grows, but in eight, 1681... There was a census taken, and there were only 10 families there at the time. Oh,
0: so this would have been by far the most rural place she had ever lived in her entire life.
1: yeah, most, yes, frontier, I would call it almost more than rural, right? <laughs>
0: yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, No. so how long did this marriage last?
1: That marriage lasted 20 years. Um, she had six more children with Robert, um, five boys and one girl three of them survived and of the the children she had had with well, the sons that she had had with Guillaume they all died um, before they were able to marry so she is survived oh, wow. only by three sons so she had nine children and only three of them survived her
0: oh that's that's wild um, so what brought the end of this marriage
1: he died of an epidemic he uh, one of the one of her sons with Guillaume died with shortly thereafter, and um, yeah. so there was an epidemic in the, at the point in time. And he died right after his 57th birthday. Then, she, a year and a half later, she married the Lord. Uh, sort of, <laughs> I like to think of it as her first marriage was, you know, a, sort of a disaster. The second one was a very secure marriage, and then. She ended her, well, she had her third marriage was sort of, she found her prince.
0: Oh, there you go. Things Army. moving up. Now, okay. it's funny. Now, how, how old would she have been at the time of this third marriage?
1: She was 57 at the time. That, According to the register of that, that marriage, um, she was 57 years old at the time, and her husband, Lord Deschamps, was um, 55 years old.
0: Okay, and um, I'm curious... Wow, uh, you would think at 57 she wouldn't necessarily need to remarry uh, so what why do you think she went ahead and did that? uh
1: there there again we have wonderful stories to tell <laughs> um i had uh, a fairy tale uh telling that they he was also on the ship i believe w- along with jeanne and her second and robert That's gotcha. and and she could have they could have you know, crossed eyes on the, the upper deck of the ship. and <laughs> But then he couldn't marry her at that time because she was a peasant girl and sure. he was an, of nobility. Uh, his family was a long-term noble family here in France. And so then when her he lost his first wife in 1681, but by that time, Jean arrives back you know gets back in touch with him because but sure. she's married gotcha. then Robert dies in 1699 and they decide they're finally you know they star-crossed love and finally <laughs> they, can, they can marry because by that time the the, the class lines had broken down and Deschamps, her third husband, Jean-Baptiste François Deschamps de La Bouteillerie, was um, you know, stay, was one of the noblemen who stayed on his property. There were other noblemen who continued to live in Quebec City and live a social life there, but, uh, but Jean-Baptiste was one of the few who stayed on the property to try to develop the property the way he had promised the king he would do. Sure. Um, so that's the very that's the romantic story. Um, <laughs> my I have a, a distant relative Ulrich Levesque, who has written a book about Robert about Robert Leveque, and his his hypothesis is that Deschamps sold his or gave his manoir his home to the church, and he didn't have any place to live at the point in time. Okay. And Jeanne and Robert had just bought uh, a property. They were quite, you know, enter- enterprising farmers. They just bought another, a, pro- a neighboring property that had a home on it. So at that point in time, Deschamps probably, according to Ulrich Levesque,
0: sure. moved into
1: one of the homes there. By the time Robert died, the, her first son by Robert, was turning was getting was getting ready to get married, and he needed a place to live. So, um, the idea was that Jean Baptiste, the lord, needed to move out of the house so that Jean's first son could move into the house with his bride. <laughs> And Uh, so where was he going to go? There wasn't a lot of rentable property at the time (laughs) or, you know, Airbnbs or any of those kinds of things. (laughs) So um, the idea was he was going to come live with Jeanne and therefore in order to live with Jeanne, he needed to marry her.
0: So his, his hypothesis, it was a very practical.
1: Yes. Very, very practical. Exactly. Then there's also the, the, I, the idea that perhaps he was ill they had become okay. good friends because they lived across the just across the little river from each other, and and so you know they're growing old, and so he decide they decide that they, they should grow old together. Um, so there's like th- at least three
0: possibilities. <laughs> I got you. Well, this is all way fun because it's a story of a you know a feederois comes to Quebec with seemingly very little, and eventually the story ends with her acquiring a title and having it, it's it's. I'm super fascinating.
1: Yes, it is. Um, the The question of her title is interesting because she actually couldn't become. She didn't become Signoresse, She became or lady de She became Madame de la Bouterie. And my assumption is that that's because she was not of nobility. That gotcha. she could. She couldn't. Now, there's some question about whether I'm right or wrong about that. But in any event. <laughs> She, did, she actually um, became Madame de la Bouterie. She lived on, he died in, they married in 1701, he died in 1703. So for the remaining 13 years of her life, she stayed a widow. Uh, yeah, but I she can... stayed in Riviere well and she died in November of 1716. But in 1713, she had a will written which was quite unusual for women at that time. In fact, even for men at that time. But to fi- to have a woman having a will was quite unusual, So, which is why I think that Jeanne was a pretty independent, strong woman gotcha. um, to have done that at the end. Um, and she arranged uh, before her third husband died, they had arranged for the division of her property But she and she needed to be taken care of by one of the sons. And so the property was all taken care of. And but she still had to leave a will in which she left some money to her first goddaughter and money for masses to be said at eight different churches about, you know, connected with where she had lived. So she had a little bit of money that she wanted to distribute at the end of her life. But she was also very conscious about her expenses because she wanted to be buried in the in the most, uh, the least expensive way. And she wanted to have, okay. mass. she was a good Catholic and she wanted to have masses said for her. Um, so it's, it's <laughs> she was a fascinating woman. That's awesome. I think, I think, yes.
0: That's very cool. Now. How did but because first of all the research that has to go in this would kind of blows my mind. But how did you find this will?
1: Uh, that's another very interesting story. Um, because Ulrich, who had done the biography of Robelovec, had did not know about the will. I was just you know going going through the microfilm sure, at, at the in Boston at the Historical Genealogical Society. And just managed, as I was reeling the, the the films, to just catch it, on to see it. Um, and I just <laughs> never would have found it if I hadn't been slowly going through the, the microfilms. Sure. Because um, there was no reference to it, until I did find a reference to it later. But um, it was just, that was, uh, no, it was luck. Or it was John... <laughs> Jean making me stop at that point so that I could see her will yes
0: that is awesome well this is a super interesting story it's a super interesting book uh, this is awesome so what are you working on now
1: uh well I have several projects here um, one is I'm spreading the word uh, uh, about Jean and the fille de Roi. the fille program in Quebec in quebec and canada is fairly well known sure um, here in france it's not as all well very well known and it has um there's some myths about it you know and so i'm trying to i do presentations um dressed as
0: jeanne <laughs> in, <laughs> that's cool
1: and to spread the word about her life and about the feedback program so that's one thing um the second thing is i'm trying to do more research on the life of her third husband gotcha. in 2022 will be the 350th anniversary of the founding of rivier well by Deschamps, her third husband and so i'm trying to find information on his birth but it's yeah i'm running into more dead ends here gotcha. um, and so that's a piece of, I'm continuing a little bit of research, not a lot, but I'm also in the, in my book on Jeanne, the The book is written as a historical book, um, as best I could with some, you know, imagination, sure. um, but it's about Jeanne and it's not about my story of all the people I met or all the experiences I had or, right. um, um, so I'm, trying to write a, a second book um, to tell the story of how I came to tell the story of Jean.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have the book in front of me right now. We'll make sure to put a, a link to it. What do you think is the easiest way for people to get a hold of this book?
1: Well, if it's uh, available on Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, also Amazon.fr. Nice. So it's available in both English and French. Very cool. Uh, and if there anyone is in Boston, it's also available at the Harvard Bookstore um, on what is it? What's the main street in in Cambridge? It's in the Harvard oh. Bookstore in Cambridge.
0: Gotcha.
1: I, those are probably the easiest ways. It's also awesome. available he, here in Dieppe if they want to come to Dieppe.
0: Yeah, very cool. They're stopping by. To. That's awesome. Yeah, I get the book in front of me now. It's great. Now, how now how about the blog? And how often do you post on there? I assume that keeps active, I've seen. yeah.
1: Well, yes, I, I try to keep that active, but I'm not as good a blogger as I'm sure you are. Um, <laughs> I get caught up in, you know, studying French, doing some things, you know, interesting things here in Dieppe. And so I maybe post three, four times a year. It's not frequent.
0: It's um, enough. It's cool. I mean, you're doing a ton of work.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you.
0: That's awesome. All right, and what is the name of the blog so people can get to it?
1: Uh, it's available on on Important that it's l y n n e l e v e s q u e dot com, and so that's it's a, the blog is there.
0: Awesome. Well, Lynn, this has been a fun. The story is super interesting. Uh, I learned a ton We're getting ready for this interview. So I really, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much, Lynn.
1: Thank you. For the interview and thank you for your very interesting questions now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair
0: to think that everything they love we simply do not share but the spirit never dies so our culture will survive each of us must choose how much to keep alive each of us must choose how much to
1: keep alive